Good morning. Let's uh, find our ways to the book of Matthew, chapter 7. We're rounding the corner down the front stretch to the finish line of the Sermon on the Mount. Sorry, I couldn't help it. It's Sunday. It's NASCAR day. It's got to get that in there. (laughs) So yeah, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23, the section where Jesus talks about a tree and its fruit, and then that I never knew you. And then next week, we'll finish up the Sermon on the Mount with this part about build your house on the rock and another little special treat. I'm going to try to plan to add in for the finishing wrap up of the Sermon on the Mount. But for today, I think these two passages will occupy our minds and hearts well enough for this week. And if they don't, oh well, I tried. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your goodness. Lord, I thank you that in your kindness towards me, you have opened up your word and let me see things that I've never seen before. And I pray that during this time, as we are looking at these words that you have spoken, that they would also come alive in this hour, that each of the persons in this room would see something they've not seen before from these passages, and that we all would feel your presence, hear your voice witnessing to us about the very things that we need to hear from you about. And I pray, Lord, that specifically that you would let the words come from my mouth that you want spoken this morning, the ones that will lead to conviction where there needs to be conviction, to uplifting and edification where there needs to be uplifting and edification, and to encouragement to walk on in the right way where we all need that. And I ask it because you have promised to give these things to us. And we ask it in Jesus' holy, sweet, precious name. Amen. All right, so let's start by reading this. Actually, I'll read both passages, starting in verse 15 of chapter 7. Because of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, you will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. Okay. This is a little different from all the other passages we've been looking at here in the Sermon on the Mount. It kind of sounds like as Jesus has saved his most powerful punches for the end. 
of this sermon that he's giving. Earlier, it was kind of like encouraging and uplifting, and now it's like, watch out, be careful, pay attention, don't do this, but also don't do that. And then he brings up this whole subject, of course, about false prophets. And I don't know about you, but it just seems kind of strange to me that in this moment here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's bringing up the subject of false prophets. But, I mean, why, why here? Well, where else would he put it? I mean, in one sense, where else would it fit? But here at the end, right? I've told you these things. In fact, actually, it makes sense when you stop to realize a couple of things about this. It's, what's, the, what's the purpose of a false prophet? What's their purpose? What is their ultimate goal? It is to simply lead you and me down a crimson path of believing in and worshiping a false god. That's what the false prophet does. And the test Jesus gives us is the words that they say and the actions they take. Do they sound like or act like what Jesus said and did? In fact, all the things that he's given us previously in the Sermon on the Mount are the very pieces of evidence we look for to see if this person's life and actions match up to what Jesus has described. And in the case of the false prophets, they don't because they're trying to do things and lead us in a direction that God has not ever created or sent them on. And one of the best evidences of what the fruit of the false prophet looks like, especially in our day and culture, is to just to look at the fruit of Jesus' life in chapters 8 and 9, immediately following the end of this Sermon on the Mount. He ends the Sermon on the Mount and immediately goes right into cleansing a leper and healing him of his leprosy. Then you have, on his way as he enters into Capernaum, you have the centurion who sins and says the servant is sick, can you come and heal them? And then Jesus decides he's going to go, but then the centurion tells him, look, you don't need to come, just say the word, because I understand how authority works. And Jesus is marveled at this, and then heals the servant from a distance just by thinking it. it I mean, it looks like he doesn't even say the words, be healed. He just thinks it, and it happens. Then he goes into Peter's house and heals his sick mother-in-law, and then verse 16 of chapter 8. This is just stunning. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits. And with a word he healed all who were sick. Wow, this is just stunning. Then he goes on to calm the storm in the middle of chapter 8 out on the waves. Then he has two demonics from Gadarenes area that Jesus heals them and cast out the demons from the, from this guy and they go into their guys and they go into the pigs, and then the pigs run off the edge of the cliff. Then you get into chapter nine and he heals a paralytic guy who's been uh, paralyzed for a really long time. He just tells him, "Oh, your sins are forgiven. Pick up your mat and go home." Then he calls Matthew a tax collector, right? I mean, this is, ta Matthew is not one of the up and coming stars of the Jewish faith when Jesus calls him to be one of Jesus' disciples. I mean, most of the disciples probably had a negative reaction to the idea of Matthew, at least initially. Then Jesus talks a bit about fasting. 
Then he deals with a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. He heals her just by her touching the edge of his garment. While he's on the way to Jairus' house to heal his sick daughter. But then while he's finishing up with the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, somebody tells him that, oh, your daughter's dead. Leave Jesus alone now. And Jesus says, oh, don't worry about that. I'll take care of it. And goes and raises her up from the dead. And then he heals two more blind men. Then he takes the guy who can't speak, who's mute because of a demon and cast out the demon. And now the guy sits around and talks to you, just like you and I. And then he finishes after doing all that. Like, I mean, you can just imagine the sort of stunned shockedness of what else can he do? I mean, what else is there left for Jesus to do after he's done all this? And he looks at the disciples and said, oh, we really have a big harvest out there. Pray for God to send workers to, for the harvest. Okay, then we'll, okay, yes, we'll do that. Yes, Jesus. That's just in chapters 8 and 9, immediately following the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, look at the fruit. The fruit is there and it's good fruit and there's a ton of it. I mean, it's like a dump truck load of fruit. So we've got plenty to compare the false prophets to. Those who say they're really the Messiah as well. We've all heard of the false messiahs. Many, everybody in this room's been here, been on the earth long enough to even remember some of the recent ones. And we've got the fruit here to compare it to. And they are, their fruit always ends up lacking, by the way. But it's not just that. It's like, okay, you, you know, these false prophets, these people who come along and say these cute things that sound really great and everybody loves what they're saying, but it just doesn't match what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about what his people are like as well as what Jesus himself actually did. And then Jesus takes us to the next step, which is where he tells us to become fruit inspectors. Now that seems a little odd because right there in the beginning of chapter 7, those first five verses, he tells us, you know, don't judge others. And so I came up with my own cute little phrase. We're supposed to be fruit inspectors, not fruit critics. That's how we are doing this thing of measuring and evaluating someone's fruit of their life, but not being judgmental or overly critical. I mean, food critics, right? Y'all can remind, I don't know, I used to sometimes would read the, the food critic write-ups and reviews in papers and magazines. And then somewhere along the way, that work shifted and instead of it being about the food it was about the critic and about how wonderful they were and how this is what they really like and it became a self-aggrandizing article and that's the very thing Jesus is telling us don't do don't be this food critic who is judging and being judgmental towards others, but instead be a fruit inspector. See, the good fruit that we're supposed to look for is everything Jesus has given us earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, the dealing with salt and light and anger and lust, divorce, oaths, 
retaliation and revenge, loving our enemies, giving to the needy, how we pray to our Father, fasting, where we put our treasures, what we're anxious and worried about, whether we're judgmental and overly critical, asking and trusting in Him. All those things are the very fruit that we're supposed to be looking for. It's, it's, those are the traits and characteristics. The, the ethos that he has called us to live by is also the ones which we determine if someone is a follower of Jesus. And then again, just as in the section about removing the log from our own eye, we have to examine our own fruit first before we start inspecting somebody else's. Right? And, and then he makes this rather scary statement. Right? He says that a healthy tree cannot bear a bad fruit and a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, that's a little scary. I mean, I got to have good fruit or I'm going to burn? Well, I mean, yes, yes. Because the fruit is the evidence of the transformational change that's taking place in us, Right? And, and, and the real problem with that statement is, is each of us know this. I mean, almost instantly we sit here and we think, huh? by fruit. I don't really want to look at my fruit because some of my fruit's good and some of it not so much. Right? And, and he said, if I got bad fruit, I'm going to burn. Is that what he really said? This is where we have to be careful about pressing this metaphor of the fruit too far. Because the idea here is of the whole life and not just a limb that is broken or diseased. Right? See, I know, a little, I know a thing or two about fruit trees and growing fruit. And I know from my own experiences in that activity that when I've got a bad limb, I don't cut down the whole tree and throw it in a brush pile and set it on fire. You know, I enjoy the good fruit that it does produce and then I deal with the bad limb and whatever its cause is. That's us. That's us too. We acknowledge the good fruit in our lives that is there because of what Jesus is doing in us. And where we've got a bad limb, we deal with that and whatever that is whatever kind of corrective measures we have to take. We don't condemn our whole self into the eternities of hell just because I've got an area of my life that's still not fixed. Right? We, we all kind of understand that, but we're afraid of it. But it's okay. It's okay. Just remember that when he talks about this idea of taking down the tree, it's just like the whole tree is a bad tree, not just one or two bad limbs. And we have to be careful, as I said, just because we tend to overreact, right? People tend to have one of two reactions to these warnings here of Jesus. The first one is that they're dismissive. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm doing okay. And they don't take the time to examine their life and, and ask the hard questions about themselves. And the second reaction that people tend to have is they only see the bad fruit 
in their life and are just absolutely sure Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. But that's not true. We can't just look at the bad fruit in our life and use that alone as a measurement of whether we're one of his children. Because we're always going to have a few pieces of bad fruit. Because we're always going to have a limb or two left that still needs working on. No, it's a, what's, what's the totality of our life? What's the totality of how we interact with him and those around us? All of the fruit, not just this one little piece that I focus on and obsess over for whatever reason. And this is even a difficult line to walk because of our propensity to extremes, right? I just described that the two reactions that most people have is one of two extremes. A completely dismissive, I'm okay, there's nothing wrong with me, or all I can see is my bad fruit, therefore Jesus is going to make me burn. No, we have to walk in that right middle ground where we're honest and objective about ourselves and our lives, but we're also seeing ourselves the way he sees us as his children that he loves and that he's shed his blood for to redeem. As I recall, all who confess on the name of Jesus are saved. Not only those that are perfect. Once you arrive to perfection, it is all who call on the name of Jesus are saved. All who put their faith and trust in him and his work on the cross, the shedding of his blood, to wash us clean and redeem us. Those are the ones who are saved. And perfection is not achieved in this life. And there's no expectation of it here. Just the expectation of the pursuit of perfection. Sort of. And then Jesus comes to this phrase or this passage and starts talking about, I never knew you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of scary too. Wait a minute. You mean people who say they know you and follow you are not going to get in? How does that work? And Jesus says, the ones who do the will of my father who is in heaven are the ones who enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, okay. But Listening to the Father and doing His will requires knowing what the will of the Father is. And how do we know what He wants from us? Well, we have His Word. All of Scripture is revealing to us generalized generalized as well as specific things that He is expecting from us and His will of what He wants to do. And then we have His Spirit working in us to show us the very things in Scripture that that are brought forward in the things that are highlighted in our hearts and minds to, to know what his will is. And, and then he's also given us each other to know what his will is. To be able to ask you know, godly, mature brothers and sisters, this is what I'm looking at, these are the things I'm weighing and considering, what do you see as a direction the Lord would take me in? And then, of course, ultimately, it's just, him and his Holy Spirit telling us, this is the direction we need to go. This is where you need to go. This is what you need to do. 
I don't want to do that. I know you don't want to do it. That's one of the reasons I'm making you do it. But I have a good reason for it. Get something that will be good for you in the end. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's going to ask you to do something difficult because he has something good for you in the end of it? But then coming back to this piece about those who would say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Wait, how does that work? Wait, what? what? You mean people who actually have something that looks like big spiritual gifts and can do mighty works are not really your disciples and they're not really getting into heaven either? Really? That, how does that work? Hmm. I don't know, but my, my, my answer this morning is that to at least let's go to Matthew chapter 25 and read verses 31 through 46 of Matthew chapter 25. And when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So when Jesus describes this, what it looks like, people who will say, Lord, Lord, and he will respond, I never knew you because they never loved the way he loved. They never cared for anybody but themselves. At least that's the description of the goats here in this chapter 25 verses 41 through 46. It describes individuals who just don't care about anybody else. We all understand that there's a limit to the generosity and charity that each of us can give both financially physically or even emotionally but that doesn't seem to be what he's describing here it seems to me that he's describing someone who's just basically indifferent and i don't have time for you today 
And, okay, so we need to do these good works, right? If, if Jesus wants us, we want to get into the kingdom of heaven, we need to do these really good works that he's given us to do, right? I mean, that's even what Timothy says, right? That he's given us good works to accomplish, well, but then we got this problem of the sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19. Yeah, go to Acts chapter 19. Let's start with verse 11. I mean, this is such a stunning event. I just think we have to look at it. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This is in Ephesus. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Okay, that should warn you there's something wrong. I... I command you in the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Not me, of course, but who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now this is where it gets really freaky and scary. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay here. Thank you very much. I appreciate that warning. Don't invoke the name of Jesus around an evil spirit unless you really believe in Jesus. That is true. That is part of the warning here. That is part of the purpose of this passage. But the other part of it is these guys would be the very ones who would get to the gates of heaven and go, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. They literally were trying to do that. And they would say, we did that. And Jesus would say, I never knew you. Oh, so doing religious things doesn't really count. Okay, this is confusing. I'm supposed to do good works, but if I do them, they don't count. What, what doesn't count is trying to do them and not really doing them in faith. In faith in Jesus, in faith in our Savior, in faith of obedience to Him to do these things because He's called us to do them, but doing them for some other reason that we think will count. And then, yeah, just this whole idea, this crazy, I mean, the impression we get here is that the evil spirit just didn't overpower these guys. I mean, he beat the snot out of them. Look at me. It says right there that they ran out naked and wounded. I imagine that as naked and bleeding. Some out of the nose, some out of the corner of their mouths, maybe some out of the arm edges or who knows wherever else they was bleeding. 
but it was not a pleasant experience. It looks pretty obvious to me that they paid a hard price for trying to fake the power of Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we should not try to cast out evil spirits if we ever happen to run across them. That's not what this is saying because it's clear that Paul did that in the earlier verses. In fact, with Paul, he didn't even have to be present according to verse 12. All he had to do was the apron. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe this, I didn't, I didn't take the time to look up what this word apron really means, but I just imagine Paul's fixing bread someplace or maybe he's cooking, preparing some lamb to cook on the grill, Randy. And he's got this apron on and he takes it off and somebody grabs it and carries it off to somebody with an evil spirit and all of a sudden the evil spirit leaves. This is just crazy stuff. This is just crazy stuff happening here. And what do we do with this crazy stuff? I mean, I can't talk about this passage and not deal with some of this stuff here. I know it's off the subject of Jesus telling people that I never knew you, but I'm sorry. I just have to deal with the crazy stuff because I just... Can't help myself. This is crazy stuff. What do you do with this crazy stuff? I mean, we're Westerners. We're civilized, mature individuals. We don't fall for that witchcraft stuff. We're too enlightened. We know better. What do you do with this crazy stuff like this? This is what I do with it. I just acknowledge the word of God says this is what happened. Paul's handkerchiefs would heal sick people. Okay, that's pretty freaky. That's freaky weird. Okay, it's freaky weird to me. I acknowledge that. But that's what happened. I've thought about trying to sell some handkerchiefs that I've prayed over, but I haven't fallen that far yet in my depravity. And people were healed. This is crazy stuff, but this is the crazy stuff that happens when new people groups come to faith in Christ. This kind of crazy stuff is not normal for us in the American church today. But these kind of miraculous, stunning events do commonly occur in unreached people groups. This is part of the evidence of the trueness of the divinity and messiahship of Jesus in that these kind of crazy, freaky, weird miracle stuff happens to affirm to those new people groups who are just hearing about Christ for the first time. It still happens true sometimes here. I had a friend who was a missionary to the Navajo Indians down in New Mexico and was actually lived and worked on the reservation in New Mexico. And he talked about this kind of stuff happens there. And it, yeah, it's freaky weird when it does, but it has a huge impact nonetheless. Fortunately, my brothers and sisters, none of us, I don't think, are called to have to generate these kind of miracles because we can't. I mean, yeah, I can lay hands on somebody and pray for them to get healed, but it ain't like I can make it happen, right? I can do that part, but I can't make them better. I can't fix them. 
So what kind of fruit, if you know, going back to chapter 7, what kind of fruit do I want to produce that's going to cause me to not be one of these who said, Lord, Lord, didn't I preach the gospel on Sunday mornings for in your name? And then he tells me I never knew you. How do I avoid that? Lord, didn't I raise my children to know you as their savior and to believe in the validity and the authority and the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture? But I still didn't know you. Didn't I sit down with people who were hurting and crying because of the most terrible things that's happened to them in their lives and comfort them with the words of scripture that you gave? Didn't I do that? But I never knew you. How do I not be that guy? What is it Jesus is saying here? What is it he's expecting that I can do all the right things but not be known by him? How can he not know me if I'm doing these things? My conclusion is the the way that that happens, that he doesn't know us, is because we never knew him. You can't know someone that doesn't know you and you don't know them. And how is it that he can never know me? Because this is all surface stuff. There's never been a deep personal relationship. Look, the sons of Sceva never had a personal relationship with Jesus. They never knew the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit as a transformed spirit-filled believers. They never experience the fellowship and the joy of walking with Christ like you and I do as his children because they never were his children. That's how we get to this place of doing great things, but Jesus didn't know us. That's why when the disciples came back to Jesus after being sent out and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us. He responded to them, be more happy that your name is written in the book of life. That's a good place to go, brothers and sisters. First piece of fruit I want in my life is my name is written in the book of life. I want that one first. Then all the other fruit can come together. And then when we start looking at each other, it's like, remember, you know, we're not looking for perfect Christians. We're just looking for the fake ones. Right? And if you and I ever feel the need to fix someone, right, and I've, I know that none of you have ever had this battle. It's just me. But when you feel the need to fix someone, I'm probably drifting into the overly critical spirit and a little bit of pridefulness. Actually, I'm not probably. I already have drifted over there. And when we are doing our Father's will, we were doing it by participating with Him in what He is doing. Remember I mentioned earlier, I don't know how to generate some of this fruit that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. That's because I don't. And I don't need to. The fruit will systemically grow out of the reality of my transformed heart and loving Jesus and walking with Him and being obedient to what He's called me to do. To participate with Him in what He's doing. He doesn't need you and me to go do stuff. 
He chooses to involve us with Him and what He is doing out of His love for us. I'm sure everyone in here can remember an experience where you got to do something with your mother or father. Maybe it was cut the grass. Maybe it was make biscuits. I don't know. Did they really need you to help them cut the grass and make the biscuits? No. Did you actually make cutting the grass and making the biscuits quicker and faster and easier? No. No, it took longer for us to do it with them. But they did it anyway because they loved us. And in the same way, he involves us in what he's doing because he loves us and he wants us to see that he's at work. And so when God draws your attention to something or someone he is working in, that most likely is a sign that he wants you to participate with him in that work. Right. This goes right back to verse 21, where everyone who does the will of my father who is in heaven. His will is for us to work with him in what he's doing. And when we see him at work in someone or something, that's most likely a sign that he wants us to get involved with him and participate with him in that work. And in doing so, we will produce some good fruit. But more importantly, our relationship and our understanding of who he is will grow and deepen and widen and our faith and trust in him will grow stronger. Yes, we'll do good things and we'll help somebody along the way, but that's just gravy. That's just icing on the cake. The real meat of the matter is that he is doing something in us to show us how much he loves us and to help us trust him more. That's the real meat of doing the will of the Father. And and that's my plea to you this morning. Just when you see God at work somewhere, and since that's what he's drawing you to, join him. Yes, it will involve areas of natural talents and gifting that you've been given, as well as spiritual gifts that the Father and the Spirit have given to you. And it will emphasize those and draw upon those as part of your equipping for what he's pulling you and drawing you into with him. All of those things are very true. But at the end of the day, it's not really so much about enhancing our skills as it is in enhancing our fellowship with him and with each other. And that's my plea to you this morning. Join the Father in what you see him doing, whether it's in your own life, in what he's doing, or in someone around you. Do that, and I have a high degree of confidence that you will never, ever hear those words, I never knew you. Because how can you not know someone you're working with and participating with in an activity? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you that you involve us in what you're doing in the world around us. Thank you that you involve us in what you're doing in the lives of our immediate family members that we have our deepest love and care for. Thank you that you are involving us in what you're doing in the lives of the people that we 
associate with and work with, even go to church with here in this fellowship. Thank you that you love us enough to draw us in and show us who you really are by having us participate with you in what you are doing. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us ready for the work you've called us to and are bringing us into and open our eyes to see that's where you're taking us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.